Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to call and equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make Him known. For more information, you can visit our website at cityofrefuge.org. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he accepted who put all things in subjected under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, I want to start with a little Latin lesson. I knew you all would be very excited about that. So I want to start with a little bit of Latin. So if you could put the the title slide up real quick. Okay, so there is a phrase that I ran across uh, in my education that I really like. It's called sine qua non. Are there any uh, any Latin scholars out there who, who know what this means? I'm sorry? Not quite. It's, it's the sine qua non means without which not. Okay? And it's used to talk about, you can go to the next slide, it's talk to use about things that is essential to the existence of something else. And it's like, if you don't have this without which, then that thing does not exist. So some examples are like what water is to a swimming pool. Has anyone ever tried swimming in a swimming pool without water? Right? If you don't have the water, you don't have a swimming pool without which not. It's what sugar is to candy, right? It is something essential to the very essence of what it is to be candy, to have sugar. It is like dad jokes to Matt Barnes's presiding, (laughs) without which not. But I, I bring this up because when we think about our faith, when we think about our salvation, I think our eyes naturally turn to the cross, For good reason, right? It is where Jesus visibly suffered and died on our behalf. It is the place where he paid the penalty for our sins. 
But I think sometimes the resurrection doesn't get quite as much of our attention. It's, it almost feels like that thing that gets added on to what happened at the cross. And I think that can happen in our own understanding of our faith. It can happen in the way we explain our faith to others. But in fact, the resurrection is a sine qua non. It is without which not of our faith. It is a sine qua non of our salvation. And that is the case that Paul makes in this passage in 1 Corinthians. He is going to make the case that the resurrection is not something that just got added on to what happened on the cross, but it is at the very center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and why we have salvation and why we have hope. So we are going to look at this passage today. Why is the resurrection essential? And we're going to look at three primary things. That One, the resurrection is necessary for salvation. Two, the resurrection is at the center of our hope. And three, the resurrected king is coming back. So here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, or excuse me, starting in verse 12, he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and evidently one of the things that is being taught or passed around is this idea that there is no resurrection. Just categorically, no one is resurrected ever. And Paul is writing to combat that idea. But I think it's worth taking a moment to say, why, why would... Why would people believe that? Why would the resurrection get ignored? Or why would people maybe not be comfortable with this idea that there is resurrection, that Jesus is resurrected? Now, we don't specifically know what all was being taught in Corinth, but there are some clues about what it was in Paul's day that might have made people uncomfortable about resurrection. And actually, I think they're not that different than their own. One of them is just that it is outside the normal experience. How many of you have watched someone be physically resurrected? Right? This is not something that is just a normal, everyday occurrence in the life of a normal human being. And so there were probably people in Paul's day that are just like, this is not what we see. So how could this happen? It is a big claim to make. But it even goes beyond that. Earlier in 1 Corinthians Paul, back in chapter 1, had said this. He said in verses 22 through 23, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to the Greeks. So the whole gospel message, Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, was something that people were skeptical of. The Jews, he says, demanded signs. Right? For, for Jesus to be one who was hung on a cross, I mean, in the Old Testament, if you're hung on a tree, that means you are cursed. And throughout Jesus' ministry, they were constantly demanding signs of him to show who he was. And even despite the signs, there was a lack of belief in him. And so they continued to demand these signs to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. And it says that the Greeks seek wisdom. Right? You can think back to what you probably know about Greek culture, right? And it's this idea of these big philosophers and people sitting around the Aragopagus, you know, debating the latest ideas. You can actually see that. And when, when Paul goes to Athens, this is happening, right? The Greeks loved big 
philosophies. They loved talking about ideas. They loved this idea of being able to plumb the depths of human nature. And here Christians come along, and they're not coming with big philosophical concepts. They're not coming with new wisdom or ideas. They are proclaiming that there was a man who died, was buried, and rose again. And that was outside their paradigm of what they were expecting. And so they said, this is just foolishness. And so here, I think, when we see in 1 Corinthians 15 why people are struggling with the resurrection, we can get it a little bit. But here, Paul is going to argue for why the resurrection is essential. And earlier, he had told what it is that Christians proclaim about Jesus. This is going earlier in chapter 15, if you're there in your Bible. He says, starting in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So here, Paul is recounting the story of what we claim about Jesus. That yes, we do believe he died. And I think that is something that most people don't have trouble believing. It's what comes after that that he rose again, that he did not stay in the tomb. And here he talks about the fact that there are witnesses to that event, right? That after he was raised, Jesus appeared to Peter. He then appeared to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 people, all who were witnesses to the fact that he had returned, that he was not dead. And this is actually very fundamental to the gospel that we proclaim. Yes, there is an extent where we are proclaiming theological concepts about who we believe God is and who Jesus is and what he did and what it meant, but fundamentally what we are doing and what the early church was doing is they were being witnesses of the fact that Jesus died and was resurrected. They were telling that story because they were the ones that had seen it, and now we as the inheritance of those witnesses are continuing that of saying, Jesus died and was resurrected, and this is how we have salvation. It wasn't just about ideas. It was about a historical event. It was about something that happened, that people saw, that they witnessed, and then they went and told others, this is what happened. But why is it important? So in verse 17... Paul says this, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now that's pretty drastic, right? He's saying if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then essentially we're still in our sins. Our faith is completely futile. Now why is that? Well, if Jesus was not resurrected, then he just died of sin. Not his sin, right? All of the sin was imputed on him. He died for the sins of others. He's still the perfect sacrifice. But if he is not raised, sin still wins. Death still wins. But it is when he comes back from the dead 
that he shows sin did not win, death did not win. It shows that death does not have a hold of him. And more than that, it means that he also is able to continue to intercede on our behalf. Romans 8, 33 through 34 says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now think about that for just a second. Jesus Christ, because he is not dead, because he is alive, he continues to intercede for us. When you get up in the morning, Jesus is interceding for you. When you sit down to breakfast, Jesus is interceding for you. When you go to work, Jesus is interceding for you. When you come back home, he is interceding for you. When you go to bed, he is interceding for you. And he is able to do that because he is not dead. That's how important the resurrection is, is that Jesus is able to continue to intercede for us because he is not dead. So that's the first thing. Resurrection is needed for our salvation because we are still in our sins. Sin has won unless he has risen again. But he goes on from there in verse 18. He says this. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. He says if there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then everyone who has gone before us, who has already died they're just gone and more than that all we have to look forward to is this life that's it that would be the only hope that we have and i think this gets at what is the very nature of our hope why is it that we have hope for the future after death and this was something that i'll be honest as a young christian i don't think i got and I think there's sort of like two ditches that, that people tend to fall into around this. And one of them was the ditch I fell into, which is sort of an over-spiritualization of heaven. So, and I'm guessing this was because of shows I had watched or things like that. But when I, when I used to think of heaven, I sort of imagined that there was like clouds and harps and kind of disembodied floating around and somehow Jesus is there and there's music and things like that, right? Like, that was sort of this kind of vague notion of heaven that I had. It was sort of this floaty, fluffy thing. I don't know. But, so that's sort of like one ditch we can fall into. But the other is, I think, something that is perhaps more common now. And it, and it focuses only on how does our faith give us the ability to deal with our problems now? Right? How does it help with today's problems or addressing social structures or injust, injustices which it does, all of those things, but perhaps there is a de-emphasis on the eternal, a de-emphasis on the spiritual. But what Paul is saying here is that our hope is tied to a physical resurrection. And this was what I think I did not get when I was a younger Christian, that what we have to look forward to is a physical resurrection into a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I'm going to be honest, there's still a lot about that that I don't totally understand what that's going to be like, but I find that so much more compelling than some sort of like floaty, fluffy thing, right? An embodied physical resurrection into a perfect body that is in eternal relationship with God, where it is just good and where there are no more tears, where we get the best of what God has intended for us to have. That's a hope. 
And what Paul is saying here is, is if there's no resurrection, we don't have that hope. All we have is what's left of this life. And he says, if that's it, if that's all our faith is accomplishing, then we are of most people to be pitied. But that is not what's the case. And he goes, in fact, and says, but 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the truth of what we proclaim, that just like as in Adam, his sin caused death to come to all of us, so too through Christ now will resurrection come through all of us. And the fact that we have witnesses that Jesus was resurrected gives us hope that that also will be the case for us. He calls Jesus here the first fruit. Right, that's a farming analogy. It's the idea of that first part of the crop that comes in at the very beginning, but it is just a signal of something much larger that is coming later on. And what he says is Jesus' resurrection is that first fruit, is the first sign that, oh yes, resurrection is absolutely possible. And just like in Adam, sin came through all, now through Jesus, resurrection is coming to everybody. Praise be to God. Now, so this is the second thing. Resurrection is essential because it is tied so meaningfully to our hope, to what we have to look forward to. The third thing is this. The resurrected king is coming back. That Jesus has died and was resurrected means that he reigns and that he will be returning. And Paul talks about that starting in verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So he talks about a time when Jesus is going to be coming back. Jesus, the returning king. Now just to be clear, he was a king the first time he came. And he actually demonstrates that when he goes riding into Jerusalem, right? He goes in riding as a king, but he goes riding in as a humble king, a king humble and riding on a donkey. But a king nonetheless, and a king who came to conquer. But he was not there to conquer Jerusalem. He was not there to conquer Israel. He wasn't there to conquer Rome. He was there to deal with sin. That was the enemy that Jesus dealt with when he first came to earth. But it talks about here that there's going to come a day where the king is going to return. And it says here that when he returns, he is going to deliver the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So it talks about here that he is, he is going to conquer the enemies of God that remain. He talks about rules, he talks about authorities, he talks about powers, both physical and spiritual. And I think this is what you see taking place in Revelation, right? It's the coming king coming to, to conquer all the enemies that remain. And it says that the final enemy is death. 
that there will come a time when death is no more because Jesus, the conquering king, is coming back to take out death too. Death's days are numbered. The resurrection proved that, that death's days are numbered. But we stand now in this in-between time, right, when Jesus has come once as the king who has conquered sin and has put a clock on death. And the second time when Jesus will be returning. And in this interim period, the risen king is offering us terms of peace. That if we will trust in him, if we will submit to his rule, then we will get to experience the resurrection power of sin being broken, of the forgiveness of our trespasses, that we will get this future hope that the resurrection was not just for Jesus, but was a foreshadow and a foretaste of something much greater to come. And that in this life, we have a lifelong loving relationship with God. He has given us terms of peace. I think it would be though pastoral malpractice if I also didn't warn you of the alternative, which is here in this passage, which is that if we continue to deny God, continue to deny Jesus, we set ourselves up as the enemies of Christ. And we see in this passage that he will return someday to deal with his enemies. But the good news is, is that the king has offered us terms of peace. Amen? So there's two big things I hope that we take away with this. One is that we would not neglect the resurrection and the telling of the gospel. Right? When we are telling the story of what Jesus has done, yes, we tell them what he did on the cross, but that is hope because he did not stay there. It is hope because three days later he came back from the dead showing that sin had been conquered, showing that there was newness of life, showing that there is a hope that goes beyond just what is going to happen in this world, that there is a hope of a future resurrection into a new heavens and a new earth. And the fact that there were over 500 people that saw him come back from the dead shows that that is entirely possible and because we know a savior who is strong and powerful and able to do so and has conquered death. That is a part of the gospel message. We are now the witnesses to the resurrection. The second part of this is if you are here today and you have not yet made peace with the king, I want you to hear one of the good news of what Jesus has done. I want you to hear the truth that Christ has died, Christ was buried, and Christ has come again. And he is offering terms of peace that if you will but put your trust in him, there is forgiveness there. There is great hope there that goes beyond just what you will experience now, but into an eternity of a loving relationship with God. And I want to invite you into that today to believe the truth of what 500 people have seen and that the church has borne witness to for generation after generation after generation of seeing resurrection power at work among the people of God and to invite you into that today.
So let's take some time to pray now. Heavenly Father, Lord, in the resurrection, we see your mighty power. Lord, that death is no problem for you. Thank you, Lord, for making a way for us to be saved. Thank you for giving us such an incredible hope. Lord, maybe grab hold of that hope when everything seems hopeless. May we not just be content with the passing things of this world, but to look with hopeful expectation to our resurrection, looking back to Jesus and seeing that it is not only possible, but that that is what he has gotten for us. Help us to be bold in the proclamation of that message, God. Help us to be good witnesses to what you have done. And now if there's any here who have not taken that step of faith, I want to invite you now to pray to the Father. I would ask that you just pray to him that you recognize your need for salvation. You recognize that you are a sinner. You recognize that without him you are lost, that you desire his forgiveness. Pray that he would save you, that he would give you this hope. If you're here today and you're praying that, would you please put your hand in the air just so I can see? Thank you. Well, Lord, thank you for this Resurrection Sunday. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to celebrate the good news. Lord, we love you so much. Pray that our lives would be a reflection of the good news that Christ has died, Christ was buried, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Amen.